Hello and welcome to the Sunday Soccer Show, brought to you by the Patterns of Play podcast. I'm your host, Greg Margolis, and with me, as always, is Mr. Michael Schmidt. Mike, how we doing? Greg, how are you now? <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> uh, all right, so this weekend, we saw a lot of surprising results, uh, both in the Bundesliga and the Premier League. Uh, plenty to discuss, especially about our two uh, our two teams and kind of what happened in both of those games, two very different uh, different games and different results. Um, some big teams kind of went down. Smaller teams seem to be punching above their weight this weekend. Uh, and as always, the VAR really dominated the headlines for another weekend in a row, which actually forced some potential changes. Uh, that were discussed during some of the games this uh, today. So uh, we will cover a little bit of everything, uh, but let's start with the Bundesliga. Schmidty, looking at the table right now, Hoffenheim, Augsburg, and Frankfurt are one, two, and three. And then you have a team that has been up there in the past with Leipzig. But what is happening through two games in the Bundesliga? Um, definitely not who we expected to see up there. <clears throat> I think Bayern had a bad weekend at the office. Otherwise, they should be kind of top of the table where they belong. Um, but I, I think this year the Bundesliga is going to take a couple weeks to settle. Uh, we talked about it last week, how top-heavy it's going to be. Let's be real. We look at this table in a couple weeks. Bayern will be at the top of it. Um, I think they just happened to get an unfortunate result. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, plenty of smaller clubs playing decent soccer right now and kind of, like we said in the intro, punching above their weight. Hoffenheim looked good this weekend. Um, Augsburg as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's anything if you're a fan of the big teams to panic about. Uh, but early season, uh, definitely not the three teams you thought you would find up there. No, for sure not. I think Augsburg is one that, they kind of tend to do this to teams throughout the year. Um, they're one that is really organized defensively, only giving up one goal so far through two, uh, that they can just be hard to kind of break down sometimes. Frankfurt won. That kind of just surprised me, to be honest, because we talked about Ber Hartha Berlin being a team that could be dangerous this year. And, um, but then you see, you know, Bayern lost, Dortmund lost, and then Schalke lost yet again and finally made the decision. Uh, I believe you told me that um, they let go of David Wagner. Yes. So, interesting decisions to be made for them uh, with one of our friends being, a, you know, a Schalke fan since, since college uh, and how he's basically said that they are just a shell of the team that they used to be. Uh, when they had the likes of Klaus Jan Huntelaar, when Neuer was their goalkeeper, uh, and now I like couldn't name you more than Nabil Bentaleb is like the only player who I can think of who's on that team. That's that's not good if he's the one that you're naming. And I think too, well, I got to give some props to my boys Verde Bremen finally getting a win. However, if you're Schalke and you're dropping that game to a Niklas Fulkrug hat trick, you really got to start asking questions of yourself in terms of what, what they're doing that they just cannot defend. Because it's one thing to not defend against Bayern. It's another thing entirely 
to not defend against some of these teams. I mean, Verter, the last several seasons, have found goals very difficult to come by. So the mm-hmm. fact that you're shipping three to a team like that, really not, really not great. And it's not a good sign of things moving forward. Like you said, they lost Wagner. So now what's the direction the club's headed in? Anytime you replace a manager in the middle of a season, it's hard. Replacing one right at the beginning, you haven't even even you haven't even even you haven't even really gotten started yet. So maybe that helps whoever comes in because they're not too far along and the system that they were playing under Wagner obviously wasn't working for them. So the new guy gets to just come in and change it right away. But yeah, it's ne- it's never a good look to have to part ways with your manager two or three weeks into a season. Definitely signs of trouble at that club. Yeah. So. Lots of changes will be coming there. I think, you know, if we look ahead, there's some, um, I want, I don't want to say easier fixtures for a lot of those top teams, but Dortmund's playing Freiburg. Freiburg's been a little bit better uh, in the past year or so, but they'll tend to be a mid table to a lower table team. Leverkusen's playing Stuttgart who just came up. Leipzig has Schalke. And then I think the toughest of the matchups for next weekend is Bayern playing Hartha Berlin, um, who I'm sure will want to bounce back after a tough loss. So um, some interesting matchups next week for them. And then they have a bit of a break. Uh, So if you're, you know, if you're Schalke and you can get out of that weekend with, you know, hopefully just a point. Anything. Yeah. Anything. Then, then you have time, you know, have a caretaker take the team over this next week and then take the time to go see who's available, um, who off the top of my head, you know, I don't know anyone besides for Maurizio Pochettino, uh, but I highly doubt he's going to want to take that job. I hear uh, Jurgen Klinsmann needs a job. Maybe they should call him up. I, I don't think he has his licenses, so I wouldn't go after him <laughs> no, and I think you're right I don't think that's the type of project Pochettino would really go for no I think when he jumps back into managing he'll probably come back to England because one of those top six teams within the next couple seasons is going to be parting ways with their manager so absolutely so we'll shift gears and we'll go into the Premier League here um, before we get into our woes and with what happened with our teams I think you know, what were some of the big ones that you saw game-wise on Saturday, Sunday, uh, and then even today that you really thought stood out to you? Um, any teams or any players in, in particular that, that's kind of really stood out to you in a positive way? Yeah, so I think number one is the Dominic Calvert-Lewin train just keeps on rolling. He, uh, he picked up another goal against Crystal Palace. Everton won that game 2-1. Crystal Palace is one of those teams that, like, you kind of never know what's going to show up with them. They could play you really tough, or they can just lie down and die for you. It was a closer game this time around, Everton 1-2-1. But really impressed, like we said last week, with Calvert-Lewin's ability to keep himself amongst the goals. And when you're a striker, that's your lifeblood, being able to score every week and and stay hot. So really good sign for Everton. They're they're three from three now, which is a phenomenal start to the season for them. Um, given that they played, you know, Spurs week one, which is a top six team. They're they're picking up the points that they need to. And I, I don't think anything changes from the last couple of weeks where we've talked about them probably being the team that's most likely maybe along with Leicester 
to to challenge those traditional six teams for uh, for the top of the table. And then moving on to my surprising result of the weekend, West Brom and Chelsea tying 3-3. <laughs> three, three. That, that result is a travesty for two reasons. First of all, Chelsea conceding three goals to West Brom with some of the worst defending I've ever seen in my life. Thiago Silva had an absolute nightmare. Just mistake after mistake. The worst one being reminiscent of the Steven Gerrard slip that gave Chelsea a goal years ago where he just kind of fell on the ball. The striker just runs through. Same exact thing happens to Thiago Silva. The fact that you conceded three goals to West Brom is just dire if you're a Chelsea supporter. That's just terrible. But then flip side, West Brom, to be up 3 nothing against a top six team and throw that away and only get a tie out of the game – when you look at games like that on your schedule as a team like West Brom, it's like we do when we're coaching high school or collegiate level, right? You look at your schedule, you run down the list, and you start marking the ones that you think you can win. West Brom definitely did not mark the Chelsea game as a game that they thought they could win. But being up by three goals, to throw that away, that could have been three points that they absolutely stole. And when they're a team that's probably going to be in the relegation conversation – that three points could have been priceless. So that's a huge, huge missed opportunity for them. Chelsea, fine. They didn't play all that bad in an offensive sense, but when your defense is just handing goals to the other team, there's only so much you can do. They did well to battle back, got the equalizer in like the 94th minute, I think Abraham scored. So good signs from an attacking perspective from them. But yeah, they got to improve defensively or it's, it's going to be a long season for them. A couple interesting choices that when your team is up three nothing at halftime, Chelsea makes two substitutions at halftime, one of which is just to replace one of your outside backs who, who in Marcus Alonso, great player. I just think he didn't do the job that day. So he brings on Azpilicueta, who's a very attacking minded outside back, and he is the one who assists their first goal. And he also brings on a wide player in Callum Hudson-Odoi for one of their central midfielders in Kovacic. And West Brom's response with their first sub is to bring a striker for a striker when the score is now three to one. Yeah. Pretty, I think uh, pretty... in, yeah, in those moments, uh, uh, a bit of an out-coaching moment, I think, which is kind of surprising to me from a Frank Lampard versus, uh, I think it's Billich. So Lampard is only in his third season as a head coach with Billich being around for plenty of time now to see, okay, we're up three or now we're up two. I probably should be bringing on another player to either lock on, lock down the defense or to just bring another player to help in the wide area where Hudson Adoy um, started to just absolutely run rampant towards the end of that second half. Yeah, you would think as a coach, he would be a little bit more reactive to what Lampard had done, especially seeing how those substitutions had influenced things. You would think, okay, we just shipped one. We could very easily ship another one. And then at that point, it's a one goal game. Anything could happen. I think you're right. Definitely out coached by Lampard there. Uh, and Lampard making, you know, the substitutions that he needed to make. I think 
that's a that's an underrated part maybe of a of a manager conversation in terms of how good of a coach somebody is. I think I think back to myself as a Spurs fan, one of the biggest problems I had with Pochettino, as amazing as he was for us, is a guy would never sub before like the 80th minute, even in a game where his initial game plan was clearly not working. We're now on the other side of that spectrum where you have Mourinho, who I think yanked Dyer 45 minutes into a game because he could tell it just wasn't working what he was trying tactically. So I think I appreciate a manager, and Lampard definitely did this, I appreciate a manager who recognizes when they get it wrong and doesn't have that ego of, well, I got to leave my starters out there because that's who I started with, and if I sub them, I'm admitting I was wrong or I'm admitting I have to change something. So I think, you know, usually when it works out like that, the manager looks like a genius, but I do think they deserve credit for kind of swallowing their pride when they see something not going properly and making the moves. Absolutely. And I think Lampard's going to really take this game to help teach and learn for the rest of the year, because they're going to see a lot of teams that are going to do this where they sit. Um, West Brom was in a a five, four, one for a majority of this game. They're going to sit really deep and make it super hard for their speedy players like Havartz and like Werner to get in behind. And so now you're going to need players to really break down this low block to be able to create goal scoring chances. Um, And they did that. It just took, you know, a little bit longer. And now I think they have some really good film to potentially work off of for future games where they're going to definitely see this against plenty of other teams that they'll run into um, some of those mid table and lower table teams. Uh, So I think in the end, to get a point out of it for Chelsea is really good. And in the end, I think it's something that helps them long-term to be successful. Um, You know, I think some of the other games went very much how they were supposed to, um, except with, you know, (laughs) Manchester United making it interesting for the most part until the very, uh, the very last minute uh, with Brighton tying it up in the 95th, it looked like, and then penalty and Bruno Fernandes doing his business in the, uh, basically the hundredth minute to get them a win against a team where they probably definitely should have won this one a little bit easier than it seemed. Yeah. And I think this game will come up again when we talk about VAR because it was a huge problem in the Spurs game that I fully intend on ranting about, and it definitely comes into play with this one as well. But this one, the game, (laughs) they blew the final whistle and then went back and gave United a penalty. And again, in this case, it's not as though the decision was incorrect. It, It was a penalty, but just I cannot wrap my head around how bad the Premier League is at using VAR in a way that makes sense that we've now reached the point where the, the final whistle can blow and then we're going to go back and VAR a penalty. And, I, I mean, credit to Bruno Fernandez, He doesn't miss penalties. He's got enough practice taking them. So, at that point, you know, that's, that's a win for United. But if you listen to Ole after the game, you know, even he's conceding we got lucky because they didn't play particularly well and Brighton really gave them a pretty, pretty good game. 
And if they hadn't been bailed out by, you know, VAR after the whistle, which now that I'm realizing it's Manchester United, that's like taking Fergie time to its next evolution. <laughs> Instead of just having Fergie time, we now have, even when the whistle blows and you think you have a result against Man United, oh, you don't. Um, but, yeah, they got bailed out. They didn't play that well. Um, you know, one of the goals they got was an own goal from Brighton. So they didn't create a ton. Uh, they got off, I think, a little easier than they should have. But, yeah, VAR just really making a mockery of this season so far. Yeah, and we'll come back to VAR. Uh, but that's definitely a good little tease of what we'll be discussing a little bit later. Uh, I think the, the one game to really talk about before we get into our two teams uh, is Leicester City just absolutely demolishing Manchester City. City, Manchester go up one nothing five minutes in with an absolute laser beam of a goal from Riyad Mahrez, the former Leicester City player. And then from there, it was just Vardy having a party and absolute domination from how Leicester was playing. They had two penalties from, from Vardy. Vardy also put in another one in the run of play. Madison put in an absolute beautiful curler from outside of the box. Ake got a, you know, a consolation goal. And then there was another penalty shout, which is unbelievable that there were three penalties uh, scored in this game. But questions being asked for how Manchester city are going about their, their business right now, especially from the backs uh, with obviously Nathan Ake coming in. Um, but now they sent out Otamendi. They are supposedly bringing in a player whose name is beyond me right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a little perplexed, I guess, about, you know, a 5-2 result for they, City. They just look disjointed right now. Uh, the player they're looking at is uh, Ruben Diaz. He's actually a very, very solid player. And I think they need him right now because it, I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced at how Pep is trying to play with the players at his disposal. And I, I think, you know, Aki came from a team in Bournemouth that while they certainly play decent football, it's not Pep's play out of the back, hyper possession focused style you know a team like Burnmouth has to play a certain way just to play to their strengths and survive and I think Aki's a good player but he's going to need time to adjust to that system and in the meantime something just doesn't look right with this city team and Leicester are by no means bad and obviously if Vardy goes off Vardy goes off I mean you're gonna you're gonna struggle to deal with his speed I mean, even with somebody like Kyle Walker back there, he was really the only one who could catch Vardy in that game. And if they didn't have Walker late in the game, there was a chance where if Vardy was one-on-one -on -one with the center back, he was gone. Walker covered and he took care of it. But at that point, Vardy would have just blown the center back away. So again, like Leicester are in pretty good form. They're playing well to start the season. They're another team like Everton that I think could challenge the big boys, but Pep's got to sort his house out. This City team does not – the balance is wrong right now. And Liverpool are just winning every week. So every result that City failed to get, 
they're just making that early season gap really wide. And the way Liverpool are playing right now, Liverpool aren't even in full gear right now. Every game that they've played so far, they've made defensive mistakes. They've, they've done not Liverpool-type things and still gotten away with it because their strength through the whole team is so vast and they have so much depth that if a defender makes a mistake like Robinson did or Robertson did in the Arsenal game today, it doesn't matter because they're going to go down the other side and score two or three goals anyway. So Pep, Pep is in a probably the hottest seat of all the top six managers because competing for the league is the expectation at City. He's not Spurs. He's not United. He's not Chelsea where they'd be happy to be in the top four. He is expected to be challenging for the league and the Champions League. And right now, they're losing ground very early to Liverpool. And I, I don't think they can afford to be doing that. Yeah. And looking at their roster right now, yes, they need to go get another big-time center back. But when you have your talisman and Sergio Aguero hurt, as always, he seems to be hurt. Uh, Gabriel Jesus is now hurt. They didn't play with a striker in this game. They need to go get somebody to to be that centerpiece for Pep because he loves to attack down the flanks. He wants to get into the high space to cross into players to, to basically just tap in. And if you don't have that central striker who can be someone to drag defenders, it just makes it so much harder to, to be able to open up space and score goals. Uh, so... I wouldn't be surprised if they go out and spend even more money uh, and try and find themselves a, a big-time striker uh, because I think they need it and they just need cover in case because the two of them, Aguero and, and Jesus, they always seem to pick up an injury at really crucial, crucial times. Yeah, they have the same conundrum Spurs do where you, know, you lose a couple players in Son and Kane and all of a sudden – you're asking players to play out of position to try to compensate. I mean, they started with Raheem Sterling up top. He's not a bad player. He's a very good finisher, but he's not a, a central striker. So he's not used to playing that position. It's not where he excels. And he's never going to impact the game on the same level that he would be, you know, coming off the flank. I just think, too, some of their players just haven't hit a particularly good run of form yet. De Bruyne has started slow. Uh, they have Mendy in there at left back, new signing. He he's doesn't looked terrible, but he's still trying to hit his stride. And I think they're in that unfortunate situation right now where they have a couple key injuries. They're not in great form, and they're just coming up against teams that are really hot. I mean, Leicester has been in good form since the season started. That was a bad matchup, I think, for City at this point in the season, given the way they're playing. Yeah. Just on the other side of the table, so we've talked a little bit about what's going on at the top. Um, my kind of uh-oh down at the bottom is Sheffield United having a very poor start, not scoring a goal yet. Uh, Burnley having a tough go of it. And then obviously West Brom not being able to seal that win. And then we can lead ourselves into here with Fulham. I've said this to you. I've said this to our group. I if they don't change a lot of this lineup, we are going to lose every single game this year. And I was joking kind of the last time I, 
I'm absolutely serious right now that watching this game today, hot poopy garbage, like from <laughs> defense to front, the only player, two players who looked half decent were Zambo and Guisa, who's this kind of eight midfielder who can kind of play box to box, but they really didn't have anyone around him to build very effectively and Mitrovic. Mitrovic had a ton of chances just throwing balls into the box, but when you're being defended by three people, it's hard to put those on net. Defensively, they're awful. Midfield, they're awful. It's just, I don't know what they were doing. They still haven't announced the the center back that they were supposedly signing. And looking at their roster right now, I was thinking about this in-game. So they lose 3-0 to Austin Villa, who's another team who is really not supposed to be very, you know, high in the table, although they are fourth right now. They, they made the right signings. They brought in a really good striker. They brought in a really good, um, I think they brought in a really good center back. They have... Triori they brought in from Lyon. They brought in a bunch of players to really add pieces around the money that they had spent. They brought in um, Martinez, from goalkeeper from Arsenal, who had yep. been playing really well and has continued to play really well. So they made really smart signings based on the needs that they had in that team. Fulham signed 17 wingers, all of whom are not Premier League level. They have Tom Kearney, who's been an absolute wonder for us for years, who looked like he was going for a walk in the park through this entire game, does not track defenders at all. They have Dennis Adoy, who's honestly, again, another like cult hero for this team. Uh, he's just not a good defender. Tim <clears throat> Ream is past his prime. Joe Bryan has his moments where he's great, has his moments where he's not so great. They brought in Kenny Tete, who has been great. He got hurt today. And no one around Mitrovic to do anything for them. So uh, to be quite honest, they need to completely revamp the entire team, which you can't do. There's you just for multiple reasons, the money that goes into that, the inability of then sinking everybody together in time to try and get yourself through the year. So Scott Parker came out today after the game and said, very much calling out the ownership. We need to make a decision if we want to be competitive this year. And I think that's a really good quote. They need to make a decision on whether or not they actually want to go and do something this year. And that's going to mean change the style of play. That's going to mean sitting people who have been really important to this team in the past and playing people who are going to fit more. And then they also need to make a decision on what the long-term plan of this uh, organization is, because I'll bring a quote up from a tweet where some woman tweeted at one of the owners, Tony Khan, who's in charge of um, all, basically all the player personnel, decision-making signings, all that stuff. And she said, you know, these, these are her words. I expect no reply, but I send this anyway. If you don't have the best interests of this club in your heart, step aside and let someone else do it uh, and do the job properly. Our fans love this club dearly, yet you seem 
too happy to let us become a yo-yo club for financial gains, which I think is a very, very accurate statement as to what has been happening since they took over. Um, same, same owners of the as the Jaguars organization. They also own like a wrestling company too that, that challenges the WWE. So clearly good business people with making money maybe not great soccer people to build a club and restore the kind of, um, you know, what this club has been in the past. And he responded to this, which again, just an interesting choice from this person. Well, absolutely nothing I can say would make up for tonight's performance. Frankly, we would have absolutely killed to be a yo-yo club when I took over after finishing 20th in the championship. What? You would have killed to be a yo-yo club. I do not understand that reply. I do not understand from a, you know, I'm a coach. I'm someone who loves this game. I love this club. If you're not here to win, what are you doing? Yeah, it's a, I think I can see the nuanced point he's trying to make at a time when a nuanced point is not going to be appreciated by the fan base. You know, he's, he's kind of trying to play the, where would you be without me angle? And when I took over, you were so low in the table in the championship. And I kind of get what he's saying, but we talked about this in our, our group of friends earlier this year, when we were talking about the potential Newcastle takeover, when you get these, super wealthy guys that buy these clubs there's always it's a coin flip between whether they're really going to take it seriously and invest the way for example a manchester city ownership does or whether they're going to just treat it as an amusement and not really spend the money needed to keep the team competitive kind of just go for that minimum viable product of make the team decent enough that we can win some games and stay up. The problem that you're pointing out and that is evident from their first three games, because we said last week, we said if they don't win against Villa or at least get a draw, get some sort of result, that's a problem. Because Villa, while a, a decent team, should certainly have been more their level than Leeds and Arsenal were. So the fact that they got blanked against a team like that, conceded three goals, that's a huge problem. So you can't kind of take the try to take the high ground with supporters and say, you're lucky to have me when that's the on-field product that you're delivering. And like you said, you're going to go down this year unless you change something drastic. And then you're right back in the championship, which is where you started when this guy took over. So then what has he really delivered? You scraped your way to the Premier League one time through the playoffs. Now he thinks his job is done. You can go straight back down. It doesn't make sense. And we all know the money involved in the Premier League. Staying in the Premier League is so valuable to a club like that. The amount of money you get, the TV rights, the image rights – that can change a club of that stature. That can give you money to put pieces around and, and keep yourself up for years at a time. So, yeah, his flippant attitude about it really doesn't help. And it's interesting to see Parker calling out the ownership 
because I, I kind of, I'm surprised more managers don't do it, to be honest. But to your point, we've talked about on this show several times, you know, does Parker show too much loyalty to players who maybe don't cut it at this level? But I wonder from your perspective, how much of it is Parker just showing them loyalty against, you know, better options that he has versus he doesn't have better options right now. So he's playing what he has and what got him here because it's either play Tim Ream or play a 19-year-old from the academy. So do you think it's more Parker doesn't have choices and that's why he's sticking with what he knows or you think he has options and he's not using them? Yeah. So we have our academy has, and I don't know as much as I used to with the academy. I don't see this like great pipeline that Fulham has been known to, uh, to be from an academy standpoint as it as it used to be uh, in the current situation. So you honestly, you obviously had the Sessegno twins come out. Um, you had Harvey Elliott, who is now at Liverpool. Um, Dembele, who's at um, Lyon. So there's, there's plenty of players who have come out of that academy. But right now, I don't know of anyone who is highly touted to come out and potentially you know, let's put him in and, and he can earn his, his stripes now. You're right in the fact that there aren't other options, especially defensively, and that's why there's been such an uproar for them to go sign center backs. Uh, and the biggest one that I think there are really big questions about are why is he continue to play um, Cavallero on the wing because he just – he tends to slow things down, especially when you're trying to play balls into Mitrovic. He constantly, and he's played on the left when he's a right-footed player. So he has to cut back basically every single time to play balls in. You're not playing knockhard in, on, you know, really at all when he's one who does love to play balls in and go at players. You're not playing Abubakar Kamara over Bobby Reed uh, when Kamara is a big, strong, physical, pacey guy who can go at defenders. So it, it, it's a little of both where I think on the defensive side, he's not playing people because he doesn't have them. But offensively, I think he has some options that he's not going with, and I'm not sure why. Um, I'm not sure if that has to do with bonuses and certain amount of games played and or if he is getting told from above like we have to play these people Cavallero because we spent 15 million on him we want to play him so um, it's a little of both but I think right now he's in a space where I just think he's very much frustrated with, with what he has yeah, it's a tough position to be in. And I think the one thing you hit on there, you know, he could be playing those players because he's getting pressure from above. He could be playing those players to passive aggressively make a point about how not good they are. <laughs> he's being told to play them. There's a lot, there's a lot that could potentially be going on there. But I, yeah, I, you know, I didn't hop on the crisis train after week one, even after week two, I didn't. This week, I'm a, I'm a little bit more willing to join you on that uh, crusade of being incredibly pessimistic about their season. That being said, 
If I wasn't balancing you out a little bit and talking you off the ledge, I wouldn't be doing my job. This next month of fixtures in the Premier League, with the exception of Wolverhampton, who they play at the beginning of October, their other three league games in October are very winnable. Sheffield United, Crystal Palace, and West Brom. If they can pick up two out of three wins from that run of games, if they can just start to accumulate some points. And by the way, Wolves got destroyed by West Ham this weekend. And West Ham are terrible. So if West Ham can do that to Wolves, no reason why Fulham can't go into that game with some confidence, maybe nick a draw. So I think this next month will define their season. If they cannot win at least two out of four of those games, they're dead in the water. If they can pick up some wins against teams that, I mean, two of those games are potential six-pointers. It's Sheffield United and West Brom. Those are teams that are going to be around them at the end of the season. So if they can get wins against those types of teams, it bodes well for their chances. But if they don't, if they don't get some results, they're then I'd be willing to declare them dead men walking in October if they don't finish with any wins. Yeah, some games to potentially right the ship, um, but I think there's probably a week left in the transfer window or maybe a little bit more. If, like I said, if they do not go and sign, honestly, two new center backs and another striker to go along with Mitrovic, I highly doubt it's going to matter. So we'll see what happens. Uh, That's it for that. Now we'll leave that there on the shelf and we'll come back to it (laughs) next time. Uh, So let's move on to Spurs and then get into this VAR situation that's coming up. What were your thoughts just on the game from Spurs? And then, you know, you didn't get to see it in the moment, but going back and, and reliving the nonsense that was, what were your thoughts on that VAR decision? for uh, the handball. Yeah, so you alluded to it. I didn't get to watch this one live. I was uh, watching two of my friends get married on Saturday, so that was pretty cool. And then uh, Sunday morning, while this game was on, I was making my way back home. Uh, I listened to the second half uh, on radio in the car, and then I kind of went back and watched the first half after the fact. From a performance perspective, I agree with Mourinho's, uh, you know, thoughts after the game. I thought we played pretty well. And before we lost Son to injury, we were just all over them. Um, Lucas Moura got a goal, which I think is huge for his confidence. Set up by Kane again, good ball to the back post. Um, Kane, I think, already has like two or three times the amount of assists he had all of last season, and he's only three games into this one, so that's nice. When he starts scoring on top of assisting, we'll be unstoppable. Uh, But the bad news there is Sonny looks like he did his hamstring, and he's going to be out for a little while. So I'll be praying to the gods that Gareth Bale gets fit very quickly and can slot into the team. Uh, But in terms of the overall performance, we played well. Newcastle's keeper stood on his head, made a number of very good saves. We made it easy for him at times by shooting right at him, which is one of my pet peeves, but he, you know, he played well. And I think had the VAR situation not happened, we would have looked back at this game and said, that's the type of kind of like 
grindy one nil win that you got to just get sometimes. Like it's unrealistic to expect to score three or four goals every game. Even a team like Liverpool doesn't do it. You look at teams every season, there's only, there's always a couple results where they just, you know, got to buckle down, play defense and win a game one, nothing. We were 99.9% of the way there to that. And I think the performance was good enough that I can take confidence coming out of it. That said, the VAR controversy happens and it kind of ruins that reading of the game. And now I can't help but look at that game and look at it as two points that we lost. What's interesting, I think that comes out of this is the two points that you really make here. One, I think Spurs are in a really good place to be moving forward. Um, I think the one big question mark, obviously, is Della Ali. Um, and I think that's something we can come back to if and when he leaves. Um, but that's another big-time center midfield playmaking player that Mourinho has not in a way let go, but is now no, no longer a part of Spurs with Erickson and potentially Ali leaving. The other side of it is losing two points in that fashion is so heartbreaking because you really don't have control over that decision. I think the biggest question mark that's come up with this new interpretation of handballs is being an actual athletic human being takes more precedence to me than whether or not the ball has hit my arm. So Eric Dyer slightly gets pushed in the back is jumping you have to put your arms up in those moments because one, it's just a reaction because your body is saying, Oh crap, I'm about to fall over. I need to put my arms out to protect myself. And two, you don't jump straight up with your arms next to you, like a freaking torpedo. Like that's not how things work anatomically. And this has happened now multiple times in different games where people are getting called for having their, their arms in unnatural positions that are messing up, you know, the play. It just doesn't make sense to me. And now the, you know, governing board has come out and they were saying this, I think before either before the Fulham game or at halftime of the Fulham game that they are changing it to now referees are allowed to interpret it based on the situation slightly more but they're not cha- they're not 100% changing the rule so interpretations now going to come into play one you know one week it might be called one way the next week it might not so now the question is are we bringing in more controversy with this or are we potentially adjusting it in a more positive direction Here's my concern there. So the, the governing body that you're speaking of is the, the IFAB, so the International Football Association Board, who made the rule in the first place, and that's what the Premier League is carrying through. So independent of the Premier League still not knowing how to use VAR properly, they're using this rule from IFAB. But what, what gets me is that in the rule as it's written right now, before any changes that they might have spoken about this weekend, There are two scenarios in which, quote-unquote, additional leeway is supposed to be considered. Scenario number one is when the ball ricochets off of another player or ricochets into the player, 
from a distance where they don't have time to react. You'll recall that happened to Doherty last week and it was given as a penalty. And I said last week, it didn't matter to the scoreline of that game, but if that's considered a penalty, that's a problem because eventually a decision like that is going to matter to a game and decide it. Scenario number two where there's supposed to be leeway is when a player is not facing the ball. Dyer is facing away from the ball when it hits his arm. And the whole kind of like arms up, arms out, natural position conversation. I actually had a very amusing exchange with Alexi Lawless of all people on Twitter because he had screen capped a photo of Dyer and Andy Carroll. And his point was, well, Andy Carroll jumped without his arms. But then the first two replies to Lawless's tweet are people taking freeze frames from half a second earlier where Carroll's arms are above his head because you have to jump that way. And the difference between Carroll and Dyer is Dyer jumps and the ball goes over his head. Dyer's coming down. When you're coming down from a jump, your arms go out to land. Go outside your apartment right now and jump off a five-foot height. Your arms are going to go out to balance yourself. That's how it works. Please don't jump from a five-foot height. Dyer's coming from the – he's coming down from his jump, and Andy Carroll's rising up to meet. So they're at different points in their jump when it happens. But the whole arm discussion thing, to me, that doesn't matter. The the simple fact of the matter is, in the law, it says that additional leeway is supposed to be considered when a player is not facing the ball. Once that ball goes over Dyer's head, he can't know what's behind him. How does he know – to move his arm from the position it's in? How does he know he's not moving it to a spot where the ball's going to go next? Like, there's no way that he can be accountable for that happening. And what bothered me about that entire scenario is from the foul to the free kick to the penalty, they got every single decision wrong. Newcastle gets the free kick in the first place because one of their players is dribbling it Hoiberg passes the ball off still has like three yards to avoid contact with Hoiberg you can watch the replay he leaves his feet and like dead fish dives into Hoiberg takes them both out and that's somehow given as a free kick to Newcastle so the foul is ridiculous in the first place then there's shouts of potential offside not on Carroll but on Fernandez He's absolutely offside too, which I still don't understand how they didn't catch that. And that's the thing is like, ordinarily I'd be like, eh, it's a close one. But again, last week, Sonny gets called offsides because he's got half a fingernail past the imaginary line, but we're not going to call it here. And then the Carroll incident heading the ball into Dyer, that's the icing on the cake. But at that point, two decisions have already been wrong in the lead up to a goal. And I said it last week, you know, we, VAR gives us a penalty against Doherty that was harsh, but it didn't matter. It didn't affect the outcome of a game. And I said last week, it's going to happen in a game where it matters. I didn't think it would happen to Spurs two weeks in a row, but it has. And now, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Steve Bruce, in his post-match interviews, the opposing manager, is giving a post-match interview where he's like, it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. We're lucky to have gotten it. You can't talk to any Newcastle fan who watched that game Sunday and is like, yeah, we deserve something out of that. Because <laughs> they know their keeper stood on his head. And it's just, 
like you said, it's disheartening to Spurs because, you know, but for 30 seconds of absolute craziness, people would have hailed that performance as like mature, grinded out the result, played really well in attack and defended well. I mean, our boys defended for 98 minutes well. Newcastle hardly had a shot at goal the entire second half. And then that happened. So it's just the breakdown in, in VAR and the breakdown of how referees are treating these incidents. And again, I hope it doesn't happen to Spurs again next week, but it's going to happen to somebody. And the same thing in the United game. It's just, it's not being used properly. Yeah. And it, you're, you're going to, at the end of the season, every team is going to look at the table and not say how many points did we lose because we played poorly. They're going to say, how many points did we lose to VAR this season? Yeah. And that's dumb. That should never be a thing. Yeah. I know that that came up last year, even before this was adjusted on different, just differing decisions, more of the offside ones, I think that was last year and how there was an adjusted table based on those decisions. You're going to see the same thing this year. You said coaches of teams who have either won or lost have come out and said, this needs to change. So there's already been a little bit of a change. I wouldn't be surprised if by January we see even more changes. Um, but plenty of drama for sure across the board throughout the Premier League. Bundesliga has been incredible so far. Um, we haven't gotten into much of uh, Serie A or La Liga, but I think after another week or so we could touch on those because there is plenty going on in those leagues as well. But that's going to wrap up this episode of the Sunday Soccer Show with Schmidt and Greg. Thank you all for tuning in as always. Mike, it's a pleasure as always. Uh, and this, yes, is coming out on a Monday, not a Sunday. Uh, but we'll be back next week. I mean, it's it's Liverpool and Arsenal's fault. They played today. We can't have a Sunday show when there's a huge game like that on Monday. And Fulham played today. So Fair. Fair. We should have done it on Sunday, though, just because then I wouldn't have to talk about Fulham. So <laughs> moving on, uh, thanks again for, for tuning in, and uh, we will be back with another episode next weekend.